Tonight, as you might suspect, to Ecclesiastes chapter number 7. Ecclesiastes chapter number 7. An alarm? Okay. Well, hopefully it didn't mean anything. <laughs> if it did, one of the ushers will come screaming in the door here in a little bit, so... Uh, you never know. There, this this modern high tech age that we live in is, is just absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, I can sit in my recliner and ask Alexa what the weather is, and it, it's the craziest thing I, I've ever seen. But uh, well, the devil's already trying to distract me. I can tell that. Ecclesiastes chapter number seven. Tonight we. We're down to verse 26, and uh, to tell you the truth, I almost just crammed the remainder of this chapter into the last message that I brought on this because, you know, it consisted of just these few verses, just a little handful of verses, and yet uh, there's some things here I want to mention tonight that just... uh, calls me to feel like that would be making a big mistake, that we need to consider them in light of what we've considered the first 25 verses, but but they need to be looked at separately, I believe. So let me read, uh, beginning in verse 26. He said, And I find more bitter than death. I've underlined that in my Bible, more bitter than death. You realize how how strong that statement is? More, more bitter than death, really. Because, you know, death is the very thing that most people will do anything to elude. You know, even, even though Paul said to die is gain, you know, still, uh, still there's something in the vestiges of our old nature that just doesn't want to let go. We can talk about the street of gold and everything and uh, all of that, but most of us just don't want to die, at least not right now. But he's talking here about something here. He says, more bitter than death. And then he explains, the woman's whose heart is snares and nets and her hand, hands are bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. I, I, again, I apologize. I've, um, I've got something going on with my eyes that I've never had before. I've got about four or five or six pairs of glasses, bifocals, everything under the sun, and uh, nothing is working. I, I, it looks like I'm going to have to as Bev always tells me, well, have you, are you going to the doctor? And so I, I guess I'm going to have to go get the optometrist to figure out what's going on. But I literally cannot hardly read with anything. Uh, so bear with me as, as I stumble through some of these verses here. Now, that being said, I want you to think tonight about Solomon's discovery. Now, that's not anything new because I've already mentioned that uh, earlier in other messages uh, as, as he has. And in verse number 25 that we dealt with last time, he, he speaks about his search. 
It's a search that he has mentioned in detail throughout this entire book, but now he tells us, at least in part, of his discovery, something that he's finally drawn a conclusion about. And I want you to notice here the words find or found. They're used seven times in these four verses. I so wanted to preach this. I didn't preach this last week, did I? Or the week before? I'm serious. Sometimes, you know, we preachers, we forget about whether we did or we didn't, you know. But we're going to look at this section just one verse at a time and then apply it to the main point at the end. And that'll tell you why I wanted to consider these verses uh, just by themselves, although they're not very long. You could say this is a sermon with one point. A sermon with one point, and I'll try to drive that home whenever we get to the close. Uh, But here he says, and I find more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands is bands. Seems strange to me that the very man who had, you know, gone to such great lengths to, you know, to warn other people uh, about the danger of illicit sex, uh, you know, had been involved in it himself. That ought to remind us that no one is above sinning. And it also ought to remind us that, uh, you know, that our advice and our warnings to to others ought to be based uh, on a spirit of humility. I mean, boy, Solomon could have taken a much different approach. And I don't know about you, but as I read this, there's, there's tenderness in it. There's deep concern in this for other people. And he could have made some, you know, smart remark like we preachers sometimes tend to do, thinking that makes us look intelligent when what it really does is make, make it appear that we don't really care. And uh, that's the way it comes across to people. So I'm so thankful that he spoke these words in a spirit of humility because, you know, remember today it might be your neighbor. Tomorrow it might be you. He's speaking here about a woman whose heart is, is snares and nets and her hands as bands. Snares, nets, and bands. All three of those have something in common, and that's captivity. You know, that's what he discovered here. That's what he's warning us about. And, uh, and, and Solomon himself had fallen prey to these things, to those women. If I had time to go over to 1 Kings, and boy, we could read about that. You're familiar with the story, but... Uh, Solomon himself fell, fell prey to women like that. And you'll remember in Proverbs again and again and again, he warns us uh, about people like that. And he warns us to not make the same mistake. You know, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get people to really listen, to really pay attention as to the danger of sin whether it's, whether it's a sin with the opposite sex or some sin that's entirely different. Uh, most people just do not see the danger in sin. And if we could really, just as I was talking about this morning, if we could let it sink in that sin is a violation of God's standard, sin is an offense against the Most High God, that makes it serious and that makes it dangerous. And that's why he says, this is more bitter than death. Now remember, 
He had tried to find satisfaction in the opposite sex, but he discovers there's nothing really more than just a, a fleeting fleshly thrill. That's, that's all there is to it. You know, after the initial excitement was over, he found himself just as empty as he had ever been before. And let me tell you, it is exactly the same whether you're talking about the millions who are trapped in sexual addiction or the millions that are trapped in some other sin. Nobody ever sets out to become a, a dope addict or a drunkard or a whoremonger. They, they don't start out that way. They start out looking for that thrill, looking for, uh, for happiness in some way or another. But notice what he says now about avoiding this pitfall. Whoso pleaseth God, well, that ought to be all of us, right? That ought to be every one of us. That ought to be the desire of our heart to please God. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her. I can't begin to explain to you how important these words are because if we're going to escape the bondage of sin, then we have to realize that God alone can enable us to do that. You know, so many times we think, well, if I'm just, if I'm just religious enough, you know, that'll do it. Or if I embrace high moral standards, you know, that'll do it. Or making resolutions and, or striving for self-discipline, but that's never enough. You sure I didn't preach this last week? I'll tell you why I keep asking that. Because the, I know I missed last week, but the week before that, I and, 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 and it was just the way God put things together. The Sunday morning message two weeks ago and the Sunday night message, which would have been this message here, just seemed to dovetail and fit together so perfectly that all week long I looked forward to, to being able to preach those two messages in the same day so we could make a connection in regards to pride and after you have, now it's been two weeks with this on my mind, it's just like, you know, in my mind it says, well, you preached that last night, you know, and, uh, and, and, and I didn't, I understand that. But, but these are things that we've gone over again and again and again, that if we're going to escape from sin, if we're going to avoid sin, then God has to do it. And the only way God is going to do it is for us to be determined in our heart that we're going to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Because, as I said, being religious and having these high moral standards, and even if we strive for self-discipline, you know, uh, that's not enough. Reformation is, is good to an extent. Somebody says, well, you know, I know I've got this bad habit. I'm going to stop this. You know, I know that I shouldn't be doing it, and I'll be better off. Uh, for getting this out of my life, and so, uh, so consequently they reform. But the problem is it never does last because only God's able to keep us from sin, and it's only as we seek to please Him that we can appropriate His power. 
You know, it's one thing to talk about the fact that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. In other words, we can just sit and focus and we can thrill at the thought that our God, our Heavenly Father, is able to do absolutely anything that needs to be done. Anything that He chooses to do, that is thrilling. But as wonderful as that is... And you read verses that says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. You say, yeah, amen, hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? That's my God. But sometimes we forget that the only people that's able to appropriate those promises are those that are seeking to do his will. If I'm, if I'm standing outside the will of God and I'm refusing to obey the will of God, I have no right to expect God to protect me or to provide for me or anything else. So that simply means that pleasing God is the key to absolutely everything in our life. That desire that I'm going to please God. It might not please my neighbor. It might not please my friends. They might not like what I'm doing, but I know this is what God wants me to do. And that's what I'm going to do. So, what's the alternative to this? I mean, he's extended this warning. A warning about trying to stay out of bondage. And the only way that we can do it. So look at the next phrase. But, here's the contrast now. Those seeking the will of God, they're going to be safe or they'll be delivered. Whatever the case might be. But, the sinner shall be taken That means captured by her. The sinner shall be taken by her. I wish I had time to go back into Proverbs and read all of the verses that relate to this very thing. And you know, Solomon talked about that, the the harlot that stands down on the street corner, you know, and at nighttime and she's watching for her prey. She's just looking for you know, someone that she can take advantage of. And that's, that's to say that sin is always in our face. Sin is always extending an invitation to us here. And it says here, the sinner shall be taken by her. Again, our only protection is God. And when we choose the path of sin, we lose all of those things that are afforded by a proper relationship with God. That, that, that's a bad and sad position to be in, don't you think? To be in a position to where we cannot, we cannot claim those promises of provision and protection. And, and, uh, and we, we bring it on ourselves. We can't blame God for that. Now, I know that sometimes God blesses us in spite of us and not because of us. That's called grace. It's not based on what we do. We do all the wrong things, and yet it seems like God is so very good to us. But mark it down, there is a hidden boundary between God's mercy and God's wrath. That's going to come to an end sooner or later. So here is the warning and here is the direction as to how we can be safe. Now verse 27, behold, stop, look and listen, pay attention. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, that's speaking about Solomon, the author of this, counting one by one to find out the account. 
Now, some of you are probably already wondering, well, what in the world is this all about? Well, don't worry, you're in good company because there's a lot of confusion about this among different preachers, uh, you know, famous preachers that do not agree on what this verse means. Look at it again. Behold, this I have found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. One by one, he's been counting, trying to figure all of this out. Well, Matthew Henry who wrote the famous commentary that many of you have. He believed Solomon was endeavoring to find out, you know, the number of his transgressions. And he's looking at his life and just one by one, he's making a list of all of the sins that, that he's discovering in his own life. Charles Bridges uh, took this to mean that he was searching for a person of virtue within his courts. And he's looking for someone that meets all of these high standards. Charles Swindoll, he says, well, it has reference to the vast number of people, you know, to whom he looked to for an answer to all of his questions. In other words, Solomon couldn't figure it all out. So he goes to Joe and John and Bill and everybody else, and he asks them, you know, if they can help him. And yet he keeps coming up empty. He's not finding the answer with them. Well, I believe if we're going to understand this verse, we have to look at the next verse. And so I, I don't think any one of those three had it, uh, had it right. I hate to say that, uh, uh, especially in light of their great popularity and their wisdom and skills and what have you. But I believe if we're going to understand this, we have to consider why, notice in verse number 28, that he speaks about the number 1,000. And this keeping it in the context now. He says, which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. In other words, I'm looking, remember, one by one, but I'm not finding anyone. And this is what he didn't find. I find not one man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. I found not only one, one man out of a thousand that understood this, but I haven't found a woman yet, he said. Now, I know what you're already thinking, and I'm not going there. I don't have that much courage, and I think that's the wrong direction to take it, by the way. But why did he why use this number 1,000? What's that got to do with anything? Well, it just so happens that this is the total number of his 700 wives and 300 concubines. So it does not appear that Solomon is counting his transgressions, as Matthew Henry said, or it doesn't appear that he's talking about any of these other things. I believe here he's looking for something that is more than an explanation. And the key seems to be in this first phrase of verse number 28. And here he's speaking about that which he was seeking. That which he's seeking, which yet... In other words, the search is still going on, which yet my soul seeketh. I hope I haven't confused you, but, but I, and, I, and I hate to just linger on this, but it's so important that, that it's like, look, I'm not looking for somebody with, a, uh, with, with an answer to this or anything like that. But notice he says uh, in the very first part, 
these things that I've been seeking. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's just thumb back through all of what he has written to all of the searches that he has gone through, all of the investigations that he had made, where he describes again and again and again that in looking for something that will satisfy, that's what he's looking for. You can call it something that will make him happy or whatever, but he's looking for satisfaction. And, and then he proceeds to tell us here that he had, he had looked for an example among all of these men and all of these women. Remember, had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he said none of them brought satisfaction. And uh, among the men, out of a thousand, there was only, only one only one person that brought some satisfaction to his life that might have been his daddy, by the way. You stop and think about it. I don't know who he had in mind. But he tells us among the men there's only one in thousands. That has nothing to do with men and women being equal or anything like that. Uh, he's not, not coming across as a male chauvinist pig or, you know, uh, he's... He's clearly testified in other places as to the virtue of a woman. He wrote in Proverbs about the virtuous woman. He, he did not have that attitude toward women. So the extent of this search evidently went, went only so far as his personal relationships. A thousand women and uh, evidently a thousand men, only one of which that brought some kind of satisfaction to his life and uh, your guess is good as mine as to who that is now here's the point if you want to expand that search to all of humanity look beyond a thousand and if Solomon had lived long enough and tried hard enough and spent every moment of every day of his life searching for satisfaction had he been able in some way to appeal to every person living on earth and to try everything on earth. You know what he would have found? Exactly what he found. That there's nothing here in this world that, that can bring satisfaction. And, uh, you know, among all of those who ever lived, there's only, only one who is perfect in righteousness, and that's Jesus. You reckon that's the one in a thousand he talked about? Yeah, because you see, he already knew something about the coming Son of God, the great Messiah. He knew about that. There's only one in a thousand. He's the only perfect one that's ever walked upon the face of this earth. And so, again, he's saying that this is a, this is a dilemma that man has never been able to figure out. Now, verse 29 Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Now, I said at the very beginning that, you know, you could call this a sermon with one point, so now I'm going to give you that one point, and the whole point of this can be summed up in these words here. And, 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 and this is what he discovered. And that is that the problems of the, of the world is man's fault, not God's. Notice he says that, that God hath made man upright. 
Oh, to think about the original creation, the wonderful opportunity they had, the joy that they had of having been created and placed in that perfect environment and in, in harmony and fellowship with God each and every moment of every day. And so this is taking us all the way back to Adam and reminding us that that first man was made in the likeness and the image of God. He was upright. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now that's the way it was. But as Paul Harvey said, now for the rest of the story. Yeah, that's the way it was. It was all very good. That's what God made. But, notice, but they have sought out many inventions. In other words, that is the unmaking of what God had made. This word inventions is an interesting word. If you look in your dictionary, you'll see that it speaks about a device. It speaks about a contrivance. Uh, it is a process that, uh, uh, that originated after study and after experiment. That's exactly what's been going on here. He's been conducting these experiments, as he tells us from the very beginning, seeing if this will help and that will help. What is it that's going to bring satisfaction? As, as one preacher said, it's, it, it has to do with self-wise reasoning and speculations of the natural intellect. Let me read that again. Self-wise reasonings and speculations of the natural intellect. Boy, does that ever hit the nail on the head because that's what most people are doing. They're not depending on what God's Word says. They're not depending on the counsel of wise men. They're depending upon their own reasoning. You know, they look at a situation and they surmise, well, there's not anything wrong with this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that it'll bring me great pleasure or I can profit from it in some way. And so they're depending upon their own reasoning. But in other words, he's speaking here about these devices that lead us away from true wisdom. And the point is that man's sinful nature is at the root of all of our problems. Uh, that's true today. And it started way back in the Garden of Eden. Charles Bridges, who, as I've mentioned often in studying Proverbs, I think has the, the best writer on Proverbs ever and many, many years ago, he said, listen carefully, man's discontent with the happiness which God hath provided for him, this was his first invention. Notice, man's discontent with the happiness which God provided for him can can you imagine that H how it is that we could be discontent with the happiness that god provided for us that that that's precisely what happened here the first device the first uh, uh, invention as it were as he calls it here was uh, the, the parent of all of the other sins it's, it's the spring from which all others came, you see, because all sin is a form of self-love instead of the love of God. Remember when we talked about pride, it's that feeling of superiority over other people, and it's that feeling of, of you know, self-sufficiency when it comes to God. That's what pride is all about. 
And so this attitude here that he's speaking of, where ever since Adam fell has existed because we were not happy evidently with what God had provided, man has sought to find something that would make him happy. The very thing that he gave up, the very thing that he lost is the very thing that he's been seeking all of these years and centuries down through history. Rather than the love of God, man has made of himself his own God. And uh, it always sends the same way. And that is in disappointment and failure. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I get a bit sick and tired of all of these extreme environmentalists that keep complaining about the awful mess we've made out of the world. Yeah. Now, now listen, uh, you know, I agree that we've done great damage to our environment in a number of ways. I understand that. I, I believe we ought to uh, be stewards of what God has given us. I, I, you know, I believe we ought to be wise in, in the use of the resources that we have here. But the point is, they act like that's the biggest problem we've got. Boy, if we can just clean up the environment, you know, get everybody on a healthy diet, if we, if we can just do this and do that, that's going to solve, uh, that's going to solve all the man's problems. That's not man's biggest problem. Man's biggest problem is what? It is the moral decline that has resulted in our departure from God. That's the real issue. And that being the real issue, then the only answer, the only solution is what? Reconciliation with God. I, I mentioned that last week or two weeks ago, I wanted to preach so bad uh, this message with a, a particular message on Sunday morning. And my plan was to introduce Sunday night's message by saying some things that I, I want you to think about. And I often talk about how God puts things together. And, and I thought about, well, Lord, I, you know, I had this planned out. I was going to preach this tonight, you know, because it goes with what I preached this morning. It's kind of like God said, no, I don't want you to do that, you know. He had another plan that I didn't know anything about. Well, that's all right because he doesn't make any mistakes. So regardless of what I preach, the facts remain the same. And the fact is there's something seriously wrong with the world. Everybody agree with that? Oh, I think only a fool would say, oh, no, I think everything's going good. I think it's going to be fine. Oh, it might not be perfect, but we're going to work through it and we're going to work it all out and uh, we'll use our great ingenuity and our resources and eventually we'll solve all of these problems. But, uh, but we haven't, have we? And we've tried everything under the sun trying to fix man's problems. There are those that have invested their lives in trying to improve things, and yet whatever they try, it always ends the same way. It always ends in failure. Nothing gets any better. It keeps getting worse. And so the question is, why is it that we keep failing? Well, the problem is that man keeps trying to fix man's problem without realizing that man's problem is man. That's where the problem is. It is with us, you see. So consequently, they spend their time, they spend their money, they spend their energy trying to fix some problem in this fallen world. 
by dealing with the fruit rather than with the root of the problem. Because when we deal with the root of the problem, it always gets back to us. And whenever it involves us, it always involves pride. Because it's pride that, you know, that, uh, that prevents us from seeing that we are the cause of the calamity. You know, that's why we keep laying the blame on somebody else's doorstep, you know. We're always looking for someone else to blame. Well, it's their fault, you know. If, if, they, if they hadn't treated me in a certain way, why, I would have been all right. And, and they hurt me or whatever, whatever the case might be. And con- consequently, we try to justify our ill behavior. And that doesn't fly in the face of God. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about and how man's reasoning is flawed. And that's what the point Solomon's making. One of the most common questions is why do bad things happen to good people? I'm going to give you the answer. You probably won't like it, but I'm going to give you the answer. The question, why do bad things happen to, to good people? Answer, because there are no good people. Now, I know there's some folks that are better than other people. I understand that, and that's true. Some people are better than others, but I'm talking about by God's standard, there's no one that's good. None of us measure up to God's standard. So the fact of the matter is bad things happen to bad people. And that includes all of us. I I wonder why these same smart addicts, I wonder why, you know, they're not asking this question. Why do good things happen to to bad people? Why? Well, I've got the answer to that too, grace. That's exactly why good things happen to bad people. Now, you, you would think at some point in history, we would finally figure out the cause of our problem, that we are our own worst enemy. You would think by now we would have discovered that because although God is, you know, good to us, blessing us in spite of our sinfulness, yet we keep making choices that are counterproductive, just like Solomon did. We're just repeating the cycle, just like Israel did in the days of the judges. That cycle they went through over and over and over again where every man did that which is right in his own eyes. And sooner or later, you know, it ought to become apparent to us that our sinful nature compels us to do things that harm us and that hurt others, you see. So this search for the solution, you know, that we keep trying different things, we think, well, what we really need is stronger laws. So we'll enact some laws against that. Boy, I mean, we'll we'll make the threat. If you do this, you know, we'll put you in prison. Well, the prisons are overflowing and crime, the crime rate's going up. So that hasn't solved the problem, you see. Somebody else comes along, and again, uh, that same old thing, a harp on all the time, education. We just need to educate people better. Well, that's not working very well, is it? Because, look, the, the, the problem that we have goes beyond, 
you know, uh, matters of society and our social interaction and our ability to make a colored TV or to put a man on Mars. Our problem, our problem's a lot deeper than that. And there's no man-made program that's going to solve these problems. And yet, we keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. What is that? They call it insanity. When you keep doing the same thing, expecting different results, that's insane. If it didn't work it is, and it's never worked, then it's not going to work. So, what is it then that keeps us from seeing ourselves as the cause of the effect? What prevents us from seeing ourselves as the big problem? Obadiah chapter 1 and verse 3 says, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. If you want to see a, a, a picture of... Uh, a picture of the world and what pride does to the world. Go home and read Romans chapter number 1 beginning at verse 18 through verse 32. And it's very clear that pride, pride is at the root of that problem to where we throw off all restraint. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their, what, imagination. Now, we're talking about those inventions, those devices that man has conjured up according to his natural reasoning, and none of that is work. And yet, and yet, and yet we have denied the Creator, and we have made a God out of the creature. And when that happens, everything begins to fall apart. And that's the world that we live in, like it or not. Like it or not, that's the world that we live in. And it's not going to change until King Jesus comes. It doesn't make any difference who we put, you know, in the White House or, or what programs that we enact. I, when I say it doesn't make a difference, it doesn't make a difference so far as changing the course of this world is what I'm talking about. It might make a difference in other ways, but this world is what it is, and it is fallen, fallen. And the best thing that we can do with the time that we've got is to tell somebody about Jesus. Because they're, they're looking for the same thing you're looking for. They're looking for something that will, will bring them happiness. Something that will uh, fulfill their life. That will satisfy them. That, that's what everybody is looking for. They just don't know where to find it. But if you're a Christian, you've already found it. And you need to tell others, just as Solomon was writing these words to warn us about the danger of sin, we need to lift our voice and to warn others about, about the, the failure of trying to find satisfaction in this old sinful world. Because it's not going to happen. It can't happen. It's impossible. There's no unsaved person that is satisfied. It's impossible. They're deceived. They might tell you they're satisfied, but they're not. Only in Jesus do we find the satisfaction that brings us joy unspeakable and full of glory and a peace that passeth all understanding. That's the only place you can find things like that. Thank God. Thank God he's findable. You know why? 
because he's seeking us. He's seeking you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So I, I hope tonight that there's something in this message that in some way will help you in your walk with the Lord or prevent you from going down the wrong path. Let's all stand, Tim, going to come and we'll extend a verse, as I said this morning, the opportunity, invitation, whatever you want to call it. But if God's speaking to your heart, you, you just might want to, you know, I want to sit there and that's all, you don't have to stand, just sit there and kneel and pray or it might be something that God's laid on your heart.